I, uh, I enjoy singing those songs. And um, churches change a little bit in some ways. We, we never leave the gospel. The gospel never changes. That message never changes. But applications change. Um, how we sometimes go about doing things. I, you've heard me tell a story. My, my dad grew up south of Nashville in, a, in Coffee County, Tennessee, in a place called Tullahoma, Tennessee. Any of you ever heard of Tullahoma, Tennessee? It's where the Worth Baseball Factory used to be. And my uncle's wife, Matt Mavis, used to work for Worth, and she actually hand-stitched baseballs. And when I would go to visit my my family, my dad's family down in Tennessee, every year she'd give me a couple of, they were called pearls. You ever hear a baseball called pearl? A pearl? A brand new white baseball is called a pearl. And so I, I was all excited every year. My Aunt Mavis would give, she'd give me a, give me a brand new baseball. That was a, that was a big deal. When I was growing up, we usually used baseballs till they fell apart, you know, and then you hope you got a new one. But, uh, and, uh, but, uh, my dad grew up, uh, his, his, he was one of 14. He was the last one to live, one of 14 kids, and, and, uh, and they farmed. My, my grandpa Davis, my dad's dad, uh, George Davis, was a farmer. And when my dad was growing up, he would, my, uncle, my grandpa would actually hire my dad and his brothers out to work for other farmers. And that was part of that. That was just part of their lifestyle. But these plant corn. My dad would plow. Started at age thirteen. He was buying a plow, old mule, single single plow, plowing. You ever do that, Roy? Some of you ever? I saw it with your granddaddy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you what? You followed your daddy. You did some of you doing that. So he plowed. Well, you know, you put a furrow in the ground and. You put a seed of corn in the ground, and when that seed gets enough moisture and heat, and it begins to germinate, then what happens? It begins to shoot up a sprout, and then it grows, and that's how you plant corn. Well, that's still how you plant corn today. You still have to have seed. It still has to go into the ground. It still has to receive the right kind of conditions. And if it does, it still shoots up a, uh, a little sprout. And then it becomes a stalk, you know, mature, becomes a stalk in uh, corn. But you don't see very many people today using plows behind mules. All right? What are they using now? Big track. What kind of tractors? Huge air conditioning tractors with stereos. I was, I was talking to a brother. Eight or ten rows at a time. Yeah, uh, I was talking to a guy here in the church. He's got a big, big, nice tractor. He says it's going to go on Moy's yard. And I said, "Yard?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Is that you know?" He said, no, "I just hook it up." And he said, "Turn on the air conditioning. Actually, listen. Put my headphones on. Listen to music." <laughs> It's a different day. So what does that have to do with the church? Well, change. Right? Change. 
The gospel never changes. Putting the seed in the ground. We're sowers. We're, Jesus said, Matthew, that we sow seed. And we sow it. And we pray that that seed falls on good soil. And if it falls on good soil, it's still growth. So we're still sowers, sowing the seed. We're the sowers. The seed's the gospel. Seed's the word of God. And we still sow. But methodologies change. And all of that to say is music has changed. And I love the new music we do. I do. I, I, I enjoy doing the sort of praise and worship music we do. I think, I think Don does an excellent job of balancing the old and the new. But I, I still like a lot of these old songs that we do on Wednesday. I haven't heard No Not One. Uh, I remember my grandpa singing that, my grandpa Veith on my mom's side. I remember Sing, he loved that song. No, not one. And then, um, what's, what's the first song we did? Lily of the Valley. I haven't heard that in years. And uh, I was also going to ask you the the last song or the one we did before "Change My Heart." Um, His eyes on the sparrow. I love that song, and I know you said you do too. I bet I'm, I'm throwing this out as a seed, Don. Uh, there's got to be some awesome choral arrangements of that. I'll just throw that out to you there, Don, for food food for thought. Band I just I just think it would be awesome to hear a choir singing that. You know, it'd be awesome one Sunday. So maybe they'll maybe they'll come down the pike. Maybe Don will do that. What do you think, Don? <laughs> I had a guy I had a worship leader years ago. We didn't get along too good. <laughs> he was young. And he had just come out of seminary, and he said, he said this to me. He said, I don't tell you what to preach. You don't tell me what kind of music to pick out. And I thought, well, okay. Uh, that's not usually what the kind of working relationship you want to have. But that's what he said to me. I don't tell you what to preach. You don't tell me what music to do. And he was young, and, <laughs> and I felt he had a lot to learn uh, on stuff. And so but he left our church. He was there. Uh, in our church while he was doing music ministry. And then he went to a church in uh, Nebraska. And he was there a couple years. He got fired. <laughs> and I, he just, he just, yeah, there, well, that's another subject. That's a story for another day. And I could have told him he was going to have problems, you know, because, you, because churches are different. And you need to learn. Every church is different. Their personalities are different. And you need, as a minister, whether you're a minister of music, a pastoral minister, whatever you do, you need to learn to, to, to know your audience. And if you go into a certain kind of church and you want to just all do all the music you like, but it's not what they're used to, you're going to, get, you're going to have some problems. <laughs> and he, anyways, he got fired. His name was Scott. <laughs> anyways. All right, let's go. What's our, what's our reading this week? Um, so we started 2 Corinthians uh, last week, but I, I didn't get to the first couple of chapters. We, we finished up uh, the 1 Corinthians, and so we'll, let me do a, kind of give a little background to 2 Corinthians, and then we'll highlight. I think uh, this week's reading, we're on week 17, a 52-week uh, plan and if you read five chapters a day, you'll get through the New Testament in 260 days. So that's this reading plan, the 260 reading plan. And, 
And uh, so we're on week 17, and, and we're at uh, 2 Corinthians, this week's reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 through, uh, through chapter 7. Um, so let me give you a little background. So if you remember, uh, when Paul went out on his um, third missionary journey, so he launches out of Antioch. Antioch was his home church. You remember there were the, that was the church where he and they were ministering. And as they, the church began to pray and fast, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to the church of Antioch and it said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas uh, to the work to which I've called them. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, when, the, when God puts it on the heart of Ananias, he said, Ananias, I want you to go to a city called Straight. There's a guy there named Saul, and he's praying. And you remember Ananias says, uh, no. <laughs> Lord, I'm not too interested in going talking to that guy. Do you know who he is? He is responsible for persecuting Christians. And then you remember God says to Ananias, don't argue with me, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine, referring to Saul, a chosen instrument instrument of mine to carry the gospel to to the Gentiles. And do you remember what the last thing that the Holy Spirit, God said to Ananias, and he said, and he will suffer much for my sake. He's going to suffer. Um, and so in Acts, when the church of Antioch sends them out, uh, church prayer sends them out, and then Paul, is uh, his, the rest of his life is devoted primarily to taking the, the gospel to Gentiles. For early part of a book of Acts is primarily about the apostle Peter and Peter ministering the gospel to Jews. And then the last half is really more about Paul uh, taking the gospel to Gentiles. And so uh, he's on his third, third trip, mission trip. Uh, to preach, look, looking for people of peace, trying to find people receptive. And so they, they go out. Um, their strategy is go out, engage with people, marketplaces in the synagogues, reason with them from the scriptures and try to reason with them to help them to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Um, so that's what he's doing. This is his third trip. He always goes back to Antioch at the end of trips to rest so you think about, you know, we, Tracy, our missions pastor here, we send teams out on mission work. Sometimes we'll send them out, what, for a week, maybe 10 days. Uh, I've been on a, longest I've ever been is three weeks, spent uh, about a week and a half in, um, in Indonesia, and then we flew from Indonesia into, uh, into Accra, Africa, and drove for about eight hours from Accra up to Ghana, Tamalin, Ghana, and I spent another week and a half there, and then finally got home, and after three weeks, I was fried, and I was ready to be back home, and uh, I can't imagine going out for three years on foot, um, and all that the Apostle Paul went through, um, uh, he's, I love in Philippians where he says, hey, I know what it's like to be abased, and I know what it's like to abound. In other words, I know what it's like not to have anything, to be hungry, 
And he said, I also know what it's like to eat sumptuously and have an abundance. You remember what he said in that? He said, but in it all, I've learned to be content in whatever state that God has for me. I've learned to be content. Have you learned that? I'm, I'm getting there. I'm still a work in progress. I don't think I've learned to be content in all states yet. But I'm, I'm praying that, that we, we do that in the Lord. So he goes on this third trip, and, and uh, his strategy on this last mission trip is to revisit churches. Let's go back. Let's check on these churches. Let's, let's see how they're doing, uh, how their leaders are doing. He's, he's always writing and concerned about their faith, their faith, their faith. Their faith. Is their faith in vain? Is their faith holding? Did they believe in vain? Their faith. And so he's always concerned about the faith of these Christians. Um, right? So those of you who are in Sunday school classes and you, you, you care about the faith. Are people staying strong in faith? Are they doubting the Lord? Staying true to him and his word? And so he's, that's the strategy. Go back. Let's check on the churches. And you remember when he got to, he's making his way back, eventually getting up to Asia Minor, Macedonia, but he's on along the way, stops in Ephesus, and he receives a letter uh, from the elders of the church Corinth, why he's in Ephesus, and they write about all the problems they were having in the church. And so then there from Ephesus, he pins this letter, and that's the letter that we just finished, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is, he's addressing all of these problems and issues uh, at the church. Well, so uh, he, he writes that letter, gets a response back, pretty good report. Well, uh, then he, he sends Titus back to go check on him. And uh, so, and then they were eventually, so from Ephesus, Titus now go back, check on him. So, Titus brings his report, and then Paul says, go back, see how they're doing. And eventually they were to reconvene when Paul got further north in Troas. He goes to the city of Troas, can't find Titus. He's not there back, so he moves on to Philippi. And when he's at Philippi, then Titus comes and, and tells him and, uh, uh, and brings him a good report. And what had, what had happened uh, after this first letter there were some false teachers who had come into the church at, at Corinth. And, um, and by the way, I'm getting lost, but when Titus delivers this report, that's when he writes the second letter. Up when he's in Philippi, he writes this, this second letter that we have in 2 Corinthians. And so, uh, uh, to, when Titus brings back word, um, uh, tells about some false teachers who had come into the church and um, these, these people were people who'd come into the church after Paul had been there the first time after he had left. So these teachers are coming in here and for whatever reasons, they had swayed the congregation to turn against Paul. They had stirred the congregation up against Paul. And they were saying things like, Paul is not really an apostle. He's weak. 
He is unimpressive, um, unqualified as a leader. He's not true. He's not a true apostle. And so they're making all these claims against Paul, and the rationale was, well, look how much he's suffering. His suffering is an indicator that he's a fake. He's a fake. He's suffering. And his suffering is evidence of him being sinful. So he's not a real apostle. Think about his life. He's suffering, going through all these hardships. He's a fake. He's sinful. And their motives were um, jealousy, uh, jealous, um, greed, pride. They wanted attention. They they wanted the praise. And so what they do you ever, and so their methodology was. Do you, do you ever know that people like this? Let's tear Paul down in order to make ourselves look better. Do you, you ever know anybody that does that? To make themselves feel better about themselves, they're going to tear everybody else down. And somehow that makes them, builds them up. That's kind of their methodology, what they were doing to make themselves look better. And, and so that's what was going on in the church. And what, what is really sad about this and really heartbreaking is there's no indication that anybody in the church defended Paul. Nobody spoke up and said, wait a minute. Ah, this, this, this kind of talk, this kind of stuff needs to stop. Nobody had Paul's back. Uh, in fact, it says they all turned on Paul. And begin to believe all this stuff. And so if you put your, yourself in the apostle Paul's shoes and you had been ministering there at your own expense, they weren't paying him. He was ministering there, working part-time to make his own way financially so that he wasn't a burden on him, suffering all the things that he had gone through led them to Christ. He refers to many of them in the letter of his, his kids, and he refers to himself as their spiritual father. He's the one that shared the gospel one with them. He's the one that helped them come to faith in Christ. And he says, you know what kind of person I was? And now these people come in there, started making these accusations about him, and they all bought into it and all believed it and all turned against him. How do you think that made you feel? You know. Uh, and, and uh, you know, especially, you know, that, 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 that kind of thing happens today, doesn't it? It happens today. You think uh, young, you know, think about, think about maybe when you were growing up and a young person, you were a young, much younger, maybe your high school year teacher, did you ever have anybody turn against you, believe lies about you, say false things about you, accuse you of things? How'd that make you feel? Well, really, that's what's going on. And so the church, no one, no one had Paul's back. So that's what was going on. And so, uh, uh, Titus goes to the church, 
confronts all of this. Um, it's kind of a voice of reason, brings them back to the truths about Paul, begins to teach, begins to admonish. Again, eventually he rejoins Paul up in Philippi, and when he finds Paul, he brings Paul a good report. And he says to Paul, the majority of the church there has repented of this. They've actually recognized they were wrong and these false teachers were wrong. But Paul hears from Titus, but not all. There's still a minority group that's against you. And so Paul, upon hearing that, he's, he's thankful. He's thankful for the, the repentant majority, but he's still concerned about the rebellious minority. And so he writes this letter as an appeal to them. And, and so that's the, that's the background for 2 uh, Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul, t- to some degree, is defending himself. And he, he talks about this. He says, kind of sad, really kind of a sad thing that I have to commend myself. And as you read this letter, there's some section where it often, sometimes it sounds like Paul is bragging on himself a little bit. But that's not what he's, he's trying to boast or, or brag on himself, but he's, he's doing that. And he reminds them of his calling. He reminds them of his character, what kind of, what kind of man that he was. And he reminds them of his conduct, of his calling from God to be an apostle, of his character, and of his conduct. And so that's what you see uh, kind of permeating to this letter. So go with me in your Bible. Start, look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, notice what he says. Um, here's the greeting. Paul, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by whose will? By the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So right at the beginning, as he writes, you, you all know this to be true. So that's who I am. That's the greeting to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. And so that's the intro. And he wishes them, here in verse 2, grace and peace. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, this is my calling. This is, this is who, I, who I am and to you. And uh, still wishes them grace and peace. Grace and peace. And then... Um, and again, the, his credibility is being attacked. So let me jump over with me and we'll come back here. But jump over with me to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Look at the first three verses. Um, in these first three verses over in chapter 3 is really, he's saying, this is my defense of apostleship. Read with me chapter 3, verse 1. He's kind of defending himself. He said, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendations or letters of commendation from you? So Paul is kind of saying here, I don't, I don't have any official letters of recommendation. I don't have any... Uh, letters from higher ups in Jerusalem. I don't have any fancy apostleship credentials. What does he say in verse two? And by the way, the let, epistles, letters, right? Letters of verse two. 
our letter, verse 2, is you. You all are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. This, this is my credential. If you want to really know if I'm an apostle, think about, you, think about yourselves. What authenticates my apostleship, he says, is you. Verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You want to know whether my apostleship is genuine? Think about your own lives. That's what Paul said. Think about how the Spirit has worked in your life, how you've come to faith in Christ. You're the evidence not letters, documents, credentials, certificates, <laughs> tab, you know, things written on some tablet of stone, but written in your hearts by the Spirit. So he's reminding them of, of that relationship and how God had worked. It makes sense? So just think about how God worked in your own life uh, when, you know, when we were there. Um, I had, a, I had a guy one time, this goes back a lot of years, his name is Jerry, and uh, good brother, um, came into the church, um, and, and Jerry, um, just he was just a pretty high-strung guy, got upset about some things, and won't go into all the background, but determined that God was going to call him to another church. He'd gotten frustrated with some people in his Sunday school class and kind of felt like he was the only one doing any work around there. And he did do a lot of work. And, and um, he wasn't nurturing his spirit. And he started doing a lot of work. And then he started looking at everybody else. And then he started getting resentful towards other people because he felt like he was doing all the work. And he was the only one that cared. and Nobody else cared. He just got into this bitter, you know, that can happen. And so he decided he was going to go to another church. And so he came into my office and he, to tell me he was leaving. He had written out a letter and he handed me this, kind of threw it abruptly across the desk, handed me this letter. And he said, I'm getting out of here uh, before things just fall apart. I'm going to leave here. And kind of like he was, kind of thought he was the one holding everything together. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I listened to him for a few minutes and um, and it was one of those conversations where you look back on it and you think, wow, and you just kind of recognize God's Holy God's Spirit really helped me to navigate through that meeting with Jerry. But he left, he resigned, turned in the letter. Before he left, I said, I tried to, rem I said, you need to be, this was, this was my last word, and he, he Turned on me and started saying a bunch of stuff. You know, I was a nice guy. He said, you're a terrible pastor. And he said some real harsher things, much harsher things than that. And my, my, I remember what I said to him. I said, well, before, here's my advice to you. Before you just angry like this, all upset at all these other people, nobody else could do anything right. He was only on it, you know, just real, real bad attitude mindset. Before you make this decision, I want you to pause and I want you to think about something. He said, what's that? I want you to think about uh, 
your son-in-law, he was married, and he had a stepson, and his stepson had started attending church, and he was on the worship team, and he was singing every Sunday morning. I want you to think about your son-in-law, how God's worked, how your son-in-law started. He's attending church here. And your son-in-law has gotten married, and his wife is attending church, and she's in a Sunday school class. And she had a son by a previous marriage. His name was Chris. And I said, Chris was about 16, 17. I said, Chris is in the youth group and, and he's here every week, here every Sunday, young, sharp young man. So before you leave here, I want you to think about your son-in-law and how he started coming to church. And you think about your daughter-in-law and you think about your grandson, your step-grandson. They're all coming, coming to church. And not only that, I want you to think about your son. He had, he had a single son. And he hadn't been in church in years. He was an electrician, had lived a very rough life, drugs, alcohol. His name was Tony. Tony was coming to church every Sunday, got real involved in the Sunday school class, was serving the Lord. And I want you to think about your wife. I want you to think about her son and his wife, Sarah. And they started coming to church. And my wife, personally, Mindy, was discipling Sarah every week. They were meeting together, doing Bible study. And so I want you to think about for you, just decide to bolt out of here, mad at me, and mad about everybody in the church, and just you're all kind of burnt. I want you to think very carefully and pray a lot before you take off out of here. And I want you to think about how God has worked in your family, worked in your life, how he was working, and he wouldn't hear it. And he, and he left. And his family, spirit, it affected his family spiritually. And his son and his wife ended up divorcing. And that young man, Chris, fell out of church. And the other son uh, stopped attending church, and he wasn't going anywhere. And the other couple, Sarah and Matt, uh, they're, they're divorced today. Um, I don't think all that would have happened. But it was an example uh, of somebody forgetting some things and getting all upset and you, you, you see some kind of that going on here at Corinth. These people forgot how God had worked, how God had blessed them, how they'd come to faith in Christ. And, and they, they, they turned from all of that and turned on Paul and it had to be hurtful. So um, that, kind of thing, that kind of thing happens. And so uh, and Paul does address the issue of his suffering. Go with me to, this is one of the classic passages in all of the Bible. There's, actually, there's two or three places here at 2 Corinthians, but just a classic passage of Scripture on Christian suffering. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. And I'm, I'm going to, let's read verses 3 through 11. Blessed or praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all what? God of all comfort. He's the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us 
in most of our tribulation. No, he comforts us in all our tribulation. So in our troubles, we have a God of comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles, verse 4, that we might be able to comfort those who also are having trouble with the same comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. You ever think about that? When you go through some kind of a suffering, some difficulty, God is there to bring comfort through the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, through the prayers of the saints. There's, God does provide comfort, and the, and the suffering that we go through, and the, we learn about God's comfort and care and His faithfulness, and that's what positions us to then learn to comfort others because we can understand their suffering. And so uh, what's, what's really bad is when we as Christians go through suffering and hardship and we waste it. You waste, it's wasted. How is it wasted? Well, it's wasted when we don't uh, recognize God's faithfulness, His comfort, care, and then recognize that this, God, this suffering that we go through can be used by God to position us and to equip us to help comfort others, minister to others. You see that in the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, after all that suffering he went through, he finally got his eyes on others, and Job began to minister to other people at the end of that story, and that's really when he began to be reestablished with joy and peace, and, and God began to, his life kind of started coming together again with blessings. And so Paul is saying, hey, the same comfort that we receive, we, it better positions us and teaches us how to comfort other people. Somebody, so until you've really been through certain things, you may not really understand what other people are going through. Right? So think about some of the sufferings of life. If you've been through cancer, you might be better able to understand what somebody else is going through when they get that diagnosis and the fear and the chemotherapy and the radiation and the sickness and the thrush in the mouth and just the hair falling out and bodies swelling up from steroids and just all the stuff that people go through with cancer. And then learning and wondering, am I going to get through this or am I going to die? And then if they do get through it and they're given a clean bill of health, then living with the fear, the questions, is it going to come back? Well, if you've been through that, you're going to be better able to understand that with other people and God can use that to position you to really minister to them. If you're a mom, young mom, and you've had miscarriages and you've lost a baby, and you hear about another sister in Christ in the church and she lost a baby. Hey, you get it, don't you? You understand what that person's going through. Or uh, job losses or you had a lost, a, a, you know, if, you, if you've lost a son or a daughter, a terrible, painful thing and you, you understand. So all the suffering, all the trial, hardship, things that we go through, and I could go on and on. God could use that 
to, really to give us a, uh, to, to teach us more about him and his grace and his sufficiency, but also use those things and those times to mature us and to teach us to be better comforters of others. So that's really what he's saying here. Continue to read with me. Verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation abounds through Christ. If we're afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. He's saying that one of the things that helps us to get through suffering and hardship is comfort. The comforts that we might receive from other people, that we receive from God, encouragement, you know, ministry that, that we need. Remember, preached Sunday on the body and how when one part hurts, all hurt with it. When one part suffers, we all suffer with it. Well, that's so, so we can encourage each other, pray for each other, support one another, love one another. And, uh, and, and so it helps us to get through those times. Um, and so he says, verse 7, our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. And then this Verse 8, for we want, do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. What trouble is that? Well, he was run out of town by the Athenians. They were threatened to kill him. They'd actually stoned him, left him for dead. Then they chased him down to Berea, and then he gets so He just suffered physical things, hardships, and he... And uh, he says, all the troubles that came to us, verse 8, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. What does that mean? That we despaired even of life. It means, gosh, I didn't sure I was even going to make it. Things were so bad. Things were so hard. I'm not, I thought maybe it'd be better if I just died hurting so bad. I just not sure I was ever going to get through this. Verse 9, he said, we, we felt that we had the sentence of death on us, in us. Felt like we were dying. For what purpose? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises even the dead. So God, God's teaching him some things, not to trust in himself who delivered us from so great a death, who does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Suffering encouragement that God provided through, 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 the, through others. You ever been there? Just maybe time, season of your life where you just weren't sure you were going to make it. Things were so hard, so overwhelming, so difficult, so challenging. People, people go through those things. Very real things. Um, life is hard. <laughs> Read what, what, uh, what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, that life is but a few days full of trouble. <laughs> full of trouble. 
Right? So that's part of life. But he goes on, God is sufficient. And in all of our sufferings, he's there with us to minister to us and to teach us things, teach us not to depend upon ourselves, but to keep depending on him and positions us to be better servants and encouragers and comforters of others. By the way, we've, we've, we've received a great comforter, the paraclete. Remember Jesus in John 16, I will go away and I will send you a replacement. I will send you a comforter and he will be with you and he'll be in you. He'll guide you on to all truth and he'll strengthen you and be there with you. And, and uh, so that's, that's the, the comfort that we receive from the Lord. A couple other things. Um, if you go, so that's just a great passage of suffering. Another one similar to it is over in chapter 4. Chapter 4. Look with me uh, at verse 7. Just a great, great text. Chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What does that mean? We have this treasure in earthen. What's the treasure? Well, life and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the earthen vessel? This body, this, this, this tent. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And then listen to this description. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life, I live by faith. I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave me. So he's dying to self, just dying to self, and that Christ would be magnified and that he would live by faith. Verse 11, or verse 12. So that death is working in us, but life in you. How is death working in us? You remember in Romans 8 where he's talking about the love of Christ and he said, and we like, and he's describing God's love for nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, no matter these trials and the hardship and all the stuff he describes. And he says, no, in all these things, we are still on a daily basis like sheep led to slaughter, dying, just dying to self. Dying. I, I met with a a pastor friend yesterday and uh, having some struggles and he said, do you ever feel like you're the only one who ever, ever feels like you're having to say you're sorry? Take initiative, meet with people and apologize. How come no one ever comes to me and says they're sorry? They're apologizing. Why is it why do I feel as if he was describing some things he's going through? So why, does, why do I feel like right now that I'm always the one who's reaching out, caring, working on relationships, and just listening? And so why do, I said, well, yeah, I, I hear you. You're, you're dying. You're dying to self. Living a crucified life because you love the Lord and you love people and you care about relationships. And, and you care about reconciliation and you care about people and so you reach out and, 
And it's a, it's a, there's some dying involved, dying to self. And, uh, but God is at work in you. He's at work in you, refining you and teaching you some things through all of this. You know, there's some people that are more concerned about being right than they are being, than having good relationships with people. Right? And what does Paul say about that? He says, if I don't have love, I can be right. I can be right about things, but if I don't have love for God, love in my heart for people, he said then basically, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, I'm, I'm really... I'm not accomplishing anything, and I'm really right. I'm just a noisy gong, clanging cymbal, clanging brass. If I don't have love, and so uh, that's kind of what Paul is saying here, dying to self, always dying, feels like he's dying. Um, and so... Where did I leave off? Verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing, verse 14, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. And then he concludes in verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Some of your Bibles may say we don't faint. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. We don't faint. Even though our outward man is perishing. Any of you ever look in the mirror and feel like your outward body is perishing? <laughs> yeah. Even though the outward is perishing, what does he say on the inside? But the inward is being renewed day by day. So um, physically, uh, I'm not as strong as I used to be. Can't do some of the things I used to do. I, I was getting out of the shower last night, fell, tripped over the curb, slip, foot slip, crashed down in the bathroom. Wonder I didn't break something. Mindy come running in there. I wouldn't have done that 20 years ago. I was sprawled out in the bathroom floor, getting out of the crashed down in the floor. <laughs> Not just, not, not as, uh, not like we once were. The outward is wasting, is changing. But what does he say God was doing on the inside? He says, but I'm being, the inward man is being renewed day by day in the Lord. I'm getting, I do, I, I feel like I'm, I'm stronger in the Lord today than I was five years ago, 10 years, 15 years ago. I'm learning more about God's sufficiency and his, God's faithfulness and God's goodness and he's true to his word. He says to the, in this letter, Corinthians, that all of God's promises in Christ are yes. They're true. He's faithful. And there's a renewal. Not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal and, of our minds and God's renewing us. And, and then he says in verse 17, for our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
And so we walk by faith and we trust the Lord. And whatever hardship and suffering and tribulation, difficulties we go through, whatever trials, we're indwelled with a comforter. Jesus said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Provided this comforter through the Holy Spirit. He's with us and his, his word has been given to us to keep our minds renewed and, and guide us in truth. And he, as a body, he surrounds us with other people who love us and who are praying for us and encouraging us. We, we have a good, a great and faithful and good God. And all of this is working for us and preparing us for uh, eternity and uh, eternal glory to be, be with him. So be renewed, be encouraged today, whatever you're going through, that God loves you and he's still with you and he's faithful. Amen. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word today. Um, especially the way that you comfort us. And we pray that the same comfort that we received from you, that God, we would be quick to meter out and to try to encourage and to console others as we pray for them and as we continue to build our lives and relationships with each other. Lord, help us to be uh, full of love as a church for one another. And uh, just uh, that love would compel us and constrain us Uh, to be serving you and serving others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.